Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, Dr. Douglas Petrovich continues his in-depth look at the architect of shock and awe, the Emperor Nimrod. Friends, we're so glad you're here today. If you're a new listener to Watchmen on the Wall, make sure you request your new listener pack. Inside, you'll find the latest issue of our Prophetic Observer newsletter and a special gift. Request your free new listener pack when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Yesterday, we began our look at the original architect of shock and awe, Nimrod. Dr. Douglas Petrovich is back with more details on this empire builder and who Nimrod really was. We're so glad you joined us today for the Watchman on the Wall broadcast. I'm your host, Clayton Van Hus, and I am joined today by one of my favorite people in the world, Dr. Douglas Petrovich. How are you doing today, Dr. P? Great, Clayton, and even better when you say such kind things like that. <laughs> oh, well, you, you were such a, a great influence on me in, in seminary and in, in my studies. You've taught me many things about how to study. That's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Petrovich has written the book, Nimrod the Empire Builder, Architect of Shock and Awe, in which he uses the the Hebrew language that's in the Bible. He uses historical records, accounts, epigraphy, and he narrows down a very good candidate for who Nimrod is in the historical record. Dr. Petrovich, we kind of left off yesterday teasing the question, why? Why is this guy Nimrod in the Bible? That is a great question, Clayton. Here's the thing. Moses doesn't really come out and tell us. And boy, oh boy, there's so many things that it would be great if the Scripture was a little bit clearer on something, a little bit more detailed, giving the whys all the time. But it doesn't always give the whys. So we're left to kind of deduce that from, from the Scripture itself. And that's where you kind of rely on context, really. When you think about when this book was written, it was written shortly before the Israelites went into the land of Canaan. Maybe even, you could say, earlier in the 40 years of wandering in the desert. So that's between 1446 and 1406 B.C. But at some point in there it's written, what are they going to do? Well, pretty clear in the Pentateuch that the Israelites were on the verge of busting into the land that God promised them. This land that would be flowing with milk and honey. This land that would be their land a land of promise. And once they got in there and started to take over the land, then they needed to fulfill the commandment of God, which was that they were to be his instrument of judgment. It's a foreboding thing we all know. It's pretty heavy in the scriptures when you look at how our modern society would view this, that God sent them in there to destroy the Canaanites. Men, women, children, animals, whatever it is. Anything living that belongs to the Canaanite people or the peoples of Canaan, various peoples, they were to eliminate its life. Again, that was a form of the meeting out, the doling out of God's judgment. That being the case, Moses knew that once the people were in the land and they had the land in their possession, that they were going to be asking for a king. He talks about this in the Pentateuch. He warns them that, you know, when you guys, to paraphrase, when you guys decide that you're going to get a king, Just know something. The the king is going to take things from you. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your time. He's going to take your children, who will be his warriors, right? 
or his administrators, there would be a heavy price to pay. And that being true, Moses also knew what it meant to have a king. Because once a king gets in position, what does he have? He has power. Now he has the ability to be an authority over every person within his kingdom. And that gets to your head. It really does. There's an old adage that I talk about in my book, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the power now that a a king possesses, it gives him visions of even more grandeur, right? right? He has a kingdom, but it's not enough. You have to get more. That kind of insatiable desire to gain more, to have more, and ultimately to have other people under your authority, under your foot, if you will, that is a dangerous poison. Once you become a king, you look around and there are other kingdoms. Well, what all automatically comes, would come to your mind? You go after that other kingdom. You overpower them. You kill their army, army if they have one. You take the king out of authority. You either kill him or imprison him for the rest of his life. And you now rule over his city. And once you do that, you would do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again. And that's what we see in Nimrod. We see a person who did that very thing. And Moses, knowing that his people, the eventual kings, would have this temptation, he used this as a prescription to show them how nasty, how vicious, how ugly it is when a king will conquer one after another city and kingdom and expand his kingdom and gain control over an entire region. In this case, most of the ancient world was under the power of Nimrod. He controlled all of southern Mesopotamia. He controlled most of northern Mesopotamia. And he controlled all the way into the land of Assyria, which is due north of southern Mesopotamia. Moses essentially wanted to make sure that the Israelites were not going to be tempted, that their kings were not going to be tempted to fall into this kind of trap, because it's not something that's good for anyone. That gives us the why. And so you mentioned a location. You mentioned, you used the word Mesopotamia. Can you give us an idea of the time and place in which Nimrod lived? Like, what is his setting historically? Where and when did he live? Sure. Uh, Let's talk about the when first, because that's really quick. He lived at the end of the 24th century and into the 23rd century B.C. If my connection to a historical figure is correct, and I'm, I'm convinced it is, the Bible doesn't specify a timing at all whatsoever. You're, you're lost with the Bible. But if you connect them to a historical figure, now you have a chance. And I'm convinced that's the right time period. The kingdom, the start of his kingdom, there's a Hebrew word for this that's used a number of times in the Bible. It's called Shinar. There's a plain there in this area of Shinar. Oftentimes in English translations, once again, as we talked about in our last episode, it's just mm-hmm. transliterated, and you see it, you read it as Shinar in the English Bible. Again, just a transliteration of Hebrew. What does that mean? That's the land of Shumer. The ancient world consisted of, well, at least the civilized world, the first ancient civilized world consisted of Shumer and then after it, Akkad. Well, Shumer is southern Mesopotamia. And so Mesopotamia is the land between the two rivers. The river on the west is the Euphrates. The river on the east or the right, if you're looking at a map, is the Tigris. So Mesopotamia is between the two, and it's southern Mesopotamia where his kingdom begins. So it mentions cities. Were you able to identify? Because I know it's hard sometimes to identify. Like, we don't even know. Well, I, you know, I think you have a great idea. But, like, you know, we argue about where Babel was. 
And you would think that'd be pretty straightforward. Yeah. And it's not always so straightforward. And, and this is really a huge part of it, historical geography. You have to understand what are the toponyms, the site names, the places where people were, the cities where they were living that, that are being talked about. And yeah, I had to do research, Clayton, into every one of those sites that's in the list of the places that were part of the starting point of his kingdom in, in southern Mesopotamia and then in the, uh, the territory that he acquired after he already became sovereign over Shumer or southern Mesopotamia, and that's up in Assyria. So, right. yeah, you, you have to get the cities right, and that's something I had to work on. And I, I think I've got the right cities, but several of those we can't even locate with certainty. Some we can, some we can't. Right. Now, I can remember of the ones that you're able to locate in class. You showed us on a map that he started, if I'm not mistaken, southeast, moving northwest as he conquered these cities. Is, is that correct? Yeah, it's basically a northward movement of this list, and that does typically. When Moses gives the parameters of the promised land, he gives one directional border after another. He gives the, the western border and the northern border and the eastern border and the, the southern border. And for each one of those borders, He's moving along point by point, points on a compass all the way. It's in a clockwise direction that he's moving, but it's a steady, consistent movement, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm convinced is what he's doing here. For example, this comes into play when you look at the cities of the southern part of his kingdom. I'm convinced that the cities are Eridu, Genesis 10.10, Eridu, Uruk, and Akkad. Mm -hmm. And all of them were located in the land of Shumer, according to my translation. So Eridu is the southernmost of the three cities. Eridu is what I will be trying to prove in my fifth book, Lord willing. Mm -hmm. I'm working on my fourth now. I'll be trying to prove that Eridu is the actual correct site for the Babel of Genesis 11, where the Tower of Babel and the dispersion and the confusion of language takes place. All of that happens not at Babylon, where Daniel, we know Daniel later, much later in history, was involved there. This isn't Babylon. That site was not occupied at the right time for this outward expansion of people. Right. And Eridu is the right site. I've got I've to say here, my first experience with you, before you were ever my professor, before I ever even knew you existed, was in the film is Genesis History, uh, which you can also find on swrc.com, in which you talk about identifying Eridu as Babel. It's fascinating. It's a great product. That is fascinating that you can do that. Let me ask a quick question. A lot of people make this claim. Did Nimrod build Babel? Yeah, and that's a really important one, Clayton, because it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that Nimrod and Babel are synonymous. These events are connected. They're actually not connected. The scripture doesn't imply that. Yeah, they're located sort of close to each other, Nimrod in chapter 10 and Babel at the start of chapter 11. But here's the thing. Nimrod was the king of a certain city, and it doesn't even tell us which city necessarily was where he got his start, but it says the starting point of his kingdom was was these three cities all in southern Mesopotamia, Eridu, Uruk, and Akkad. Whether Eridu was the first kingdom or not, city or not of his kingdom, at least that's the first one that Moses is noting, and that's showing that he probably is the king of another city. In fact, I would suggest that that's true. But his kingdom consisted of Eridu and Uruk and Akkad. Those are three different cities, and it would have taken him time to acquire more than just his own city, right? He became the king of his own city. 
And so he had all of these cities in his possession. And really, these three cities in southern Mesopotamia aren't the end of the list for, for southern Mesopotamia. They're just representative of all of the cities that he would have possessed in southern Mesopotamia. Then he went off into Assyria. So what do we know about this guy? He had a kingdom that consisted of multiple cities, not just one, multiple cities. What's true about Babel in Genesis 11? What's true about it is, from the sense of an understanding of you know, a true urbanized center, a place where you have public works and you have a city wall and an administrative government, usually with a king who's ruling, and, and you have what we call canalization, which is a drainage system that consists of you know, sewage and, and irrigation, and you have all of these things going on that define urbanization. Really, what Genesis 11 is doing is it's giving us a view into the first city, the first urbanized center in the ancient world. But look then at Nimrod, who, yes, he comes, he shows up in the Bible earlier than Babel, but at his time, he is a king of, of a city, and then his kingdom expands, and he, now he's got multiple cities. All of these would be urbanized centers, all with kings that he overtook and killed the, the, um, the kings who were ruling there. And so he became the master of, of a, a vast kingdom. Now, com- contrast that with Babel. Babel is the first urbanized center. So how in the world can Nimrod, as a king in, in control of many cities, how can he be connected with the first urbanized center anywhere. It makes no sense at all. So that's one of the reasons, and I talk about this in my book. In fact, my favorite place in the entire book is in the introductory chapter where I argue strongly that we should be separating the time frame of Nimrod and the time frame of Babel. And that actually Babel, even though it shows up later in the Bible, it happens much earlier than Nimrod. And I'll let you look into my book as to, you know, just why that would be the case that Moses would write something out of chronological order. And truth be told, that's typical for how Moses writes in the book of Genesis. Interesting. So, yeah, so you and I were recently at a conference where someone presented the idea of Nimrod building Babel, and a friend of ours. So, yeah, you do face a lot of people wanting to make that claim. We've got Nimrod located in a place, and I think we're getting a rough idea of the time. Who are some of the candidates for Nimrod, and where do you land on that? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of ideas have been presented out there, some of them just in popular culture and others by scholars. And one of them actually is Ninurta, the the god of war. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit already, Clayton. So, yeah, this is a really important question. There are other options that have been presented out there in the ancient Near Eastern, the, the Mesopotamian pantheon. This idea is very strange because it means that Nimrod isn't a man. And we, we talked about this already, Clayton, the importance mm-hmm. of understanding that Nimrod derives from Cush. Cush is a descendant of Noah, and then Noah is a descendant of Adam. So it's this line of mankind that's woven all the way down in the book of Genesis, down to Abram and, and further. But the point is that these are all humans descended from Adam. Well, Ninurta is the god of war. And as we know already, you know, like Paul said when he talked about idols, right, that these are just made of wood or stone or some other material, 
but they don't have any essence to them. They don't have any being. They don't have any spirit. They're, they're not alive. And that's all they are is a statue. Well, Ninurta, as the god of war, that's not a real god. That's a god that's been crafted or constructed in the minds of men in the ancient world. So how, how can you connect Nimrod to Ninurta? It makes no sense. Another option is Gilgamesh, who's a king of Uruk. Well, the thing is with Gilgamesh is he lives at a much different time frame than, than the events that would be true of Genesis 10 for, um, for Nimrod. So I talk in my book more about why Gilgamesh also is not an ideal candidate. And then the third one that I talk about is Amenhotep III. He's actually an Egyptian pharaoh, one of the great Egyptologists of the 20th century. Kurt Seta, who's a, a German scholar, he proposed that Amenhotep III is actually the right candidate. Well, that doesn't work too well because his reign starts in 1407 B.C. Moses died in 1406 B.C. So how in the world can you have a king who gains a kingdom city after city after city, expands his kingdom in a whole new direction, increases that kingdom, and this would have taken years and probably decades to occur in, in real time, how can all of this happen? And then you give Moses time to write about it, and all this take place in one year. It makes no sense at all. Plus, no. Amenhotep III never campaigned into Mesopotamia, let alone possessed cities in southern Mesopotamia or cities in Assyria. So he becomes a terrible candidate for, for Nimrod. I devote an entire chapter to, to these these false candidates, and, and I call the chapter Pin the Tail on the Donkey, because these are, these are ideas that really kind of get away from the details of Genesis 10, which constrict us, right? Let's take the Bible seriously. If whoever the historical person is behind Nimrod, if, if we've got a candidate, we've got to match him up against this biography, right? These biographical yeah. requirements. And if he misses one of them, Clayton, he's out. He's no longer a candidate. Sure. So with our last bit of time, we're talking with Dr. Douglas Petrovich, author of Nimrod, the Empire Builder, architect of shock and awe. Dr. P, who is your candidate? Well, my candidate, and I'm not the first to propose him, Clayton. Maybe I'm the first to write a book in which I argue for him as the right candidate. But my candidate is the first empire builder in the history of the world, and that is Sargon of Akkad. Sargon of Akkad started a kingdom, and he expanded his kingdom. Where did his kingdom start? His kingdom started in southern Mesopotamia. All of southern Mesopotamia became part of his kingdom. And he expanded his kingdom in a, in a multitude of directions, only one of which being to the north. There are other directions, too. And one of the places where he went, and we know this now from archaeology, archaeological finds at various sites, such as Tel Mozan and Tel Brock and, and others, reveal the clear and undeniable remains of the Akkadian conquerors from southern Mesopotamia who came up into the north, conquered cities, and absorbed them into the kingdom. Well, who was this? Who was the person who initiated all of these, these moves? Sargon of Akkad. He's the first king in the, in the dynasty of the Akkadian uh, rulers of the, the Akkadian Empire, and he expanded his kingdom all the way to Ebla and, and even into southeastern 
Anatolia, which is modern Turkey, right, in that direction. He expanded it to Elam and other areas in the east, and he expanded it to the south. So what we read about with Nimrod's biography, we get a lot more data about where he went, whom he conquered, how great his kingdom was, what were his specific accomplishments. So what I try to do in my book is to match up these cryptic references in the Bible to these much more expansive descriptions in ancient history that parallel one another. So I talk about the similarity between the two in geographical and genealogical origin. I talk about the similarity between the two in their military activities and their imperialistic ventures. And then I also talk about the superiority of Sargon's candidacy over other candidates, such as his grandson, uh, Naram Sin, and then some of the other great empire builders of the future. So clearly, Nimrod, I think, is undeniably to be matched with Sargon of Akkad, the first empire builder in, in world history. And that would be the perfect candidate for Moses because he was well known in and around Mesopotamia and, and Assyria for hundreds and even thousands of years. And he's known in the Bible for hundreds and even thousands of years. There's a later reference to Nimrod in, in one of the prophets, right? Mm. Almost a thousand years later after Moses writes. Yeah, he was he was somebody. Nimrod. Yeah. Yeah, he was somebody. He he had a name, he had a reputation. And and that fits well with Sargon of Akkad. That is amazing the way you can can pull these together, see the the verisimilitude between the scripture and of course recorded history. One last question before we go here in just a moment. As a as a Christian layperson, as a believer, how will your book help me? Well, it's funny, Clayton, you know, one of the questions I think that I'm asked more than any other, and I think it's so important, is, you know, what, what's the applicational value here? Well, it's, it's really simple, and it's really profound. And it goes back, I'll take it back to when I was a seminary student. One of my professors ingrained in us the need to, to push ourselves away from power. He said, you know, and we were all young at the time, you know, he said, he said, some of you, when you get older, you're going to be pastors. You're, you'll be, you know, associate pastors or senior pastors, or, you know, you'll be in charge of ministries, or you'll be, you know, regional directors of this, that, or the other. He said, you're going to have positions of authority, and the danger is going to come when all of a sudden you can use your authority, kind of look in the mirror with it and say, wow, I can do more with this. And you can take power into your own hands. And Clayton, I've seen this in the church over and over and over. Mm. Pastors who take power into their own hands and rule as local feudal lords with everyone under, their, under them needing to bow to the pastor. Well, I have news for you. That is a dangerous place to be. And that's why what was impressed in me was whenever power is put near you, you do three things with it. You divest it, divest it, divest it. What does that mean? You push it as far away from you as you can. And you you realize that all you have in your position is authority. If you, if you even have that, that's all you have. You don't have power. Don't take power. Can you do it? Yes. Do men and women do it? Yes. But oh my goodness, the destruction that they wreak because they take power into their own hands, Clayton. Any ministry position you have, any position at work that you have, if you work in a factory or you work in an office or you're 
you're a programmer or whatever you're doing, if you're given authority, do not confuse that with power and do not manipulate others in such a way that you are, you're exercising power over them. Because I've got news for you. You're going to have to give an account to God one day, and I'm going to have to give an account to God one day, what we do with the authority we have. Who does the church belong to? Jesus Christ. Does he ever give it away to anyone? No. Not to a denominational head, not to a senior pastor, not to anyone. None of it belongs to us, ever. And so all the time, we need to be working to push that power away. If we follow into the footsteps of of Nimrod, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to conquer other people. We're going to put them under our feet. We're going to rule them with an iron fist. And that is not honoring to God. As a leader, I was taught you need to do three things. You need to be over the other leaders. You need to be equal to the other leaders. And you need to be under the other leaders. All three, Clayton, all three at the very same time. And if you're not comfortable with any one of those three, give away your leadership. Don't even be in it. Don't be tempted because you may become corrupted by taking power into your own hands. So that's the message that this is giving us, that when we have positions of authority God gives us, we have to have utter humility in them and never take them for granted, never take them into our own hands, never think that we're above others. We're never above others. We're always below others. And we need to lift them up to become leaders that model our leadership after the leadership of Jesus. What did he do? He put himself under other people. He who existed in the form of God did not desire to grasp or to hold on to that. He gave up fellowship with his father to come down to serve on planet Earth, and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And that's how we need to lead. And that's the message. Wow. The book is Nimrod the Empire Builder, architect of shock and awe. The author is Dr. Douglas Petrovich. Dr. Petrovich, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate you. My pleasure, Clayton. Great to be with you. And thank you to all our listeners. I hope you enjoy what we've had to talk about. Absolutely. One character who has fascinated readers of the Bible is Nimrod, whose brief biography is hidden away in Genesis chapter 10. He was a powerful king who built a kingdom in southern Mesopotamia, then expanded it northward by conquering and building up cities in Assyria. Since Moses wrote about Nimrod before his death, the options are limited for the identity of this ancient Near Eastern empire builder. In his brand new book, Nimrod, the Empire Builder, Architect of Shock and Awe, Dr. Douglas Petrovich reveals the true identity of this tyrant. Historical evidence from archaeology, Ancient text and ancient drawings points to only one man who fits the description of biblical Nimrod. In this book, Dr. Petrovich attempts to weed out the wrongly identified candidates and prove to the reader just who in history can be equated confidently with Nimrod. Nimrod, the empire builder, architect of shock and awe. Order your copy today when you call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order at our website, swrc.com Nimrod, the Empire Builder Architect of Shock and Awe by Dr. Douglas Petrovich 1-800-652-1144 Tomorrow on Watchmen on the Wall we'll travel to Vietnam Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station 
by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Please visit our website, swrc.com.